Lord, your grace and mercy are marvelous and wonderful. Thank you that even though we are prone to wander, you pull us back in. You draw us unto yourself. Lord, thank you that your word and your spirit are sufficient. So, Father, in just a moment, we're going to dismiss our children to Children's Church, and then we're going to take all that we have, and we're going to focus on your word. And, God, I, I know that I am sinful, and I know that I am unworthy and unable. But, God, you are able. So would you preach to us this morning? Spirit, would you move through the reading, through the teaching, through the proclamation of your holy word that you breathed out? God, may my words fall to the wayside and your words burn their way into our hearts and minds. God, many of us this morning need encouragement. We need comfort. We need strength. And your word is sufficient for those things. But God, we also need to be challenged, motivated, and convicted of our sin that we might surrender to you once again. And your word is sufficient for that also. God, would you accomplish all of these things by the power of your word? We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, I'd like to dismiss our children to Children's Church, ages 3 to 5, all of our preschoolers, ages 3 to 5. Who's going to get there first? Who's going to get there first? Ho! All right. Well, my friends, we are going to continue this morning in our sermon series in Exodus. More specifically, we're going to be in Exodus 14 once again. I know you may be thinking that we have been in Exodus 14 a lot, and we have been here for several services in Exodus 14, but there is a lot to glean from this chapter. I will remind you of the book by Robert J. Morgan, not J.P. Morgan, uh, J.P. Morgan Financial Solutions did not uh, write a book called Red Sea Rules. It was Robert J. Morgan. That's, that's my bad. Um, so Robert J. Morgan, Red Sea Rules. Listen, it is a powerful book for any walk of life that you may be in, but especially if you're walking through a difficult season. It is a powerful interpretation of Exodus 14, and it has impacted my life in such a way that I cannot get away from Exodus 14 and what the Red Sea Rules have kind of taught me in reading this chapter. So we will be in chapter 14 for a, w- a little while longer. Uh, just to recap where we have been in the first couple of verses of Exodus 14, we looked at how God has us where we are on purpose 
and for a purpose. We have to realize that God has us where we are. He is the one who has orchestrated the events of our life, either directly or indirectly. God either brought us someplace specifically or allowed something to befall us for our good and his glory. Remember those first few verses in Exodus 14 that God told them to turn back to go to this particular place and to encamp there between Migdal and the sea, facing the sea. Super specific instructions. God allows the things that happen in our lives to happen. He causes the things that happen in our lives to happen. And it is for our good and His glory. So that means that when we are in a difficult time or in a season of prosperity and success and everything is going great, we need to be more concerned for God's glory than our relief or comfort or convenient or financial success or financial stability. It's not that we are not concerned with those things, but our primary concern should be with God's glory. So if we find ourselves in an extremely challenging and difficult situation, our first question should not be, God, can you give me relief? Our first question should be, God, how are you going to glorify yourself in the midst of this? I know that you're doing something here, God. How are you going to get glory from this? So not only did we look at a perspective shift, Two weeks ago, but last week we looked at another perspective shift. Be more concerned, be more focused on God than our enemy. Remember how last week we talked about the Israelites just absolutely go into panic. And we'll read it again here in just a moment. They rail against Moses, right? Or they're not good enough graves in Egypt, Moses. What's the problem? Why don't you bring us all the way out here to die in the desert? Immediately, as soon as Pharaoh's army is in hot pursuit, they think nothing of God. They think everything of Pharaoh and rail against Moses. Remember, we use the analogy of of running by a, a dog that's behind a fence and that dog cannot touch us. That is our enemy. Anything that Satan does to us is something that God would even allow to happen. We didn't talk about this last week, but remember the story of Job. God is the one who sets all the parameters on Job. God says, okay, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Then he says, you can punish him or test him or torture him or whatever Satan is going to do up to this point, but not a step further. So Satan goes that far and not a step further. Because remember, Satan comes back and says, well, it's because you didn't let me strike his health. You see, Satan has no power and no authority outside of what God allows him to have. So God is the one that puts up that fence that stops the prowling lion from getting to us. So our focus does not need to be on Satan. We acknowledge that he is there, but we keep our eyes focused on our Lord and his goodness and his mercy and who God is. So this week, we're going to look at just one particular verse. I want to read all 14 verses from Exodus 14 that we've been reading, but we're only going to zero in on Exodus 14.10. This week, we're going to focus on how the Israelites cried out to the Lord, how they prayed in the midst of the crisis. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to take them once again and turn with me once again to the book of Exodus. Exodus is a super easy book to find. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Exodus is the second. So you just start right there at the beginning. You'll be right there with us. Exodus 14. We'll be reading verses 1 through 14. 
Once again, as you find your place, I would ask if you're physically able, would you please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's holy word? I will read for us Exodus 14, 1 through 14. When I've completed reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. I encourage you to respond with a resounding thanks be to God. Let's look together now at Exodus 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. They said, what is this we have done? We have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and he took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with the officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped at the sea by Pi-Haharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die here in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This morning, we're going to look at some specific things that we launch out of from Exodus 14:10. The people feared greatly, and then they cried out to the Lord. This particular word is another word that is synonymous for they prayed unto God. So this morning, we're going to take time to talk about prayer. Exodus 14:10 is kind of going to be a launch pad for us into a discussion about prayer. Prayer. So we're going to look at two major categories regarding prayer. First, we're going to look at why do we pray? And there'll be three things that we talk about under why do we pray? Then we're going to look at how do we pray? Underneath that, we'll talk about spontaneous prayers and we'll talk about systematic prayers. So we will talk about why we pray, three things about why we pray, how we pray, and beneath how we pray, we will talk about spontaneous prayers and systematic prayers. So you're with me. That's where we're going. So if you take notes, those are points to take notes on. So let's begin with why do we pray? I don't know about you guys, but I feel that 
Prayer is exemplified so well in Scripture. We have so many passages of so many examples of people crying out to the Lord and Jesus telling parables about people praying and folks praying before they even know what prayer is or know how to pray. It's all over the Bible. So I I get this sense of, well, I should pray, but oftentimes, maybe you don't struggle with this, I, I sometimes forget it's straight up commanded that we pray. Like, it's not just a nice suggestion. It's not just an encouragement like, hey, you know, if you're, if you're feeling like it, you know, look at all these people in the Bible. I mean, you know, they prayed. And if you want to follow Jesus, be like them. Maybe you should pray, too. It's not like that. We are commanded to pray at multiple points in Scripture. So we're not going to look at all of them, but just a few. We're going to run through them together. We are commanded to pray. First Thessalonians 5, 17 and 18. Paul writes under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. So pray, you could just, the rest is a qualifier. Pray, it is a command, it is an imperative. There's no secret Greek translation here. There's no extra deep meaning we got to find. It's just a command, pray. And then here's some ways to pray without ceasing. You should always be praying. Pray, it's a direct command. Then in verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It is the will of God that we give thanks in all circumstances. It is the will of God that we pray. God has commanded us to pray. It is his will that we pray. So we are directly commanded to pray and give thanks in all circumstances. Even when things are terrible. They're terrible because God's doing something for me and for you. Even when they are great God's doing something for me and for His glory. For you and for His glory. Pray without ceasing. Matthew 5, or Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. We're going to look at how Jesus implies this command in three different verses and then straight up gives the command in verse 9. So verse 5, and when you pray, Jesus' assumption here is that you and I will be praying. When you pray, not if you pray or the day that you might feel like praying or if you grow to a certain maturity level in your faith where prayer becomes essential to you. No, no, no. Jesus says when you pray, that means you're going to pray. I'm going to pray when you pray. Here's some qualifiers. You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse six. Here we go again. But when you pray. The assumption you will be praying when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse seven again. And when you pray. Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Then in verse 9, we find that imperative once again. Nothing fancy or special or secret or deeper meaning to it. Pray like this. It's just a straight up imperative, just a command from Jesus' very lips. If you got a problem with 1 Thessalonians was written by Paul, here's Jesus' very words Pray like this and then gives the example. Look at Luke chapter 18, verse one, Luke 18, verse one. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So he tells them a parable and we're told that the express purpose of this parable is so that they will always pray. 
Seems to match up perfectly with 1 Thessalonians, right? Always be in prayer. It is a direct command from our Creator. Lastly, Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Folks, let your requests be made known to God. But in everything, let your requests be made known to God. To God, you know, we have this this thing that doesn't exist anymore very well in the English language. It's called the subjunctive. We use it when we say things like, may God bless you. Hey, let's go get something to eat. It's an indirect command through the subjunctive. But, you know, that's just for grammar nerds in here. Any where my grammar nerds at? Yeah, we don't exist. It's just we're a rare breed. OK. All right. I don't, I, nobody raised their hand. It's OK. But that's the subjunctive. It's the command through what he says. Let your requests be made known. It's another command to pray. Folks, all over Scripture, these are just a few of the examples. We pray because we're told to. It's not just a we ought to. It's not just a when you fit. We're just commanded to pray. But i got to be honest with you that guilt is a terrible motivator. So if, if I go to the Bible and I see that the Bible says you got to pray, I'm commanding you to pray, Nathan, then I'm going to be awesome at it for like two weeks. I don't know about you guys. I'm really good at when, oh my goodness, Jesus has told me to pray. The master of the universe who spoke it all into existence has said, Nathan, pray. So for two weeks, I'm going to be like, Lord Jesus, I love you. I'm praying. I'm talking to you. And I'm going to take this step. I'm going to take that step. Be with my kids. Be with my family. Be with my wife. Woo! I'm going to be a good prayer. And then after about two weeks, I'm just going to start taper off. Because the guilt that motivated me is going to start to wane and to, to drop off. So let's look at some other reasons why we pray. Maybe it, maybe it won't just be a guilt that motivates us, but an inspiration because prayer is our opportunity to participate in what God is doing. Prayer is our opportunity to participate in what God is doing. We're commanded to pray, but we also get the privilege of being a part of what God is doing through Prayer. It's the most amazing thing that sometimes the breakthrough that somebody needs, God has chosen our prayers to be the means of giving them that breakthrough. God already knows that they need the breakthrough and He has called upon us to pray for them. Maybe there's a prodigal that's off in the wilderness and that family is praying for their son to come home and you join them in that prayer and get to participate and celebrate when God brings that son home. He is inviting you and I to participate in what He is doing because He uses our prayers by His Control by His sovereignty, by His wonderful mercy, He lets us play even the smallest role in the deliverance, in the answer, in the response that He gives. We even saw this earlier in our series in Exodus. So they get to this place in Exodus chapter 14. But remember in Exodus chapter 2. In Exodus chapter 2 verses 23 through 25. Listen to what happens. They've been enslaved now. And Pharaoh tried to kill all of the babies, remember? And so they're experiencing this great suffering. And listen to what the Word of the Lord says. You may remember from this sermon. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. This is the same verb, the same word, the same phrasing. Everything is the same as what we saw in Exodus 14.10 this morning. They cried out to the Lord for help. And their cry 
for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Folks, we get to participate in people's rescue. They prayed and cried out to God for rescue in Exodus chapter 2. And here we are in Exodus chapter 14. They're getting rescued. And they get to be a small part of that because they cried out to the Lord. And the Lord took their prayers into account and began the process of rescuing them. Now it's amazing that God lets us, allows us and lets us do this because you gotta remember, time is God's plaything. He made it. He exists in time and outside of time. He knows the future, the present, and the past all the same. So when God spoke that the universe would exist, in whatever linear timeline there was, He knew every prayer that would ever be prayed before there was a world. He knew how He would answer it, but He chose for us to pray and that be the means of Him delivering and rescuing. And when you and I choose not to pray, we're going, eh, God's just going to do what He wants to do. I don't really have to be a part of that. One of your friends comes up to you and goes, man, we had no money left in the bank and this check just showed up out of nowhere. And you don't get to go, oh my goodness, I was praying for you to be provided for. I knew that there was struggle. You just are like, oh, that's pretty cool. God provided. He showed up. It's the difference of being on the team when the team wins and sitting in the stands. Boy, you're excited when you sit in the stands, but you weren't on the team. Listen, we tell this story and this analogy all the time, so you've probably heard it 15 trillion times, but bear with me because I just love it and it's just good, okay? You know the guy that was in the flood, right? And the flood waters were rising and he said, Lord, save me, right? He prays, cries out, boat comes by, says, hey man, hop in the boat and we'll save you. And he goes, no, 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 Lord's going to save me. Don't worry about it. Lord's going to save me. Well, the flood waters rise and now he's on the second level of his house and a real nice boat comes by and says, come on, man, hop in and we'll save you. And he goes, no, 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 don't worry about it. Lord's going to save me. Flood waters keep rising. They're over his roof now. He's treading water. Coast guard helicopter comes by, lowers the basket down. And when the basket gets right there by him, they're hollering down. Get in the basket, dude. And he goes, no thanks, brah. I'm fine. The Lord's going to save me. Well, then he, he drowns. He dies. So he stands before the Lord and he goes, Lord, I asked you to save me. I prayed. I cried out. Why didn't you save me? And the Lord goes, well, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. What else do you want me to do, man? Sometimes, all right, in that analogy, our prayers are the boats and the helicopters. They're the means by which God has chosen and allowed for us to participate in His grace and His mercy and His rescue. So we don't just pray because God's commanded it. We pray because we get the opportunity, the privilege to participate in what God is doing through prayer. We pray thirdly to change our own heart. Sometimes we approach prayer as though we're trying to change God's heart. And folks, I am guilty of this time and time and time again. I think that I am going to wrench God's hand and force Him to do something for me or force Him to answer my prayers. But it's the equivalent of one of our children saying, I want a new toy. And if I don't get a new toy, I'm just going to hold my breath. <gasps> well, I mean, every parent knows they're either going to give up or then they're going to pass out. And what's going to happen when they pass out? They're going to start breathing. So you just look at him and go, keep on holding, buddy. Ain't going to work out too good for you. Daddy's got one up on you on this one. 
It's the same thing with the Lord. When we think that we're forcing God to change His heart, we've forgotten that His love is unconditional. God already showed us how much He loves us in John 3.16. He so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. His only begotten Son, He gave for us. That love has no conditions on it. You're not going to pray and make God love you more. He already loves you most. There's no other level that His love can go to for how much He loves you. So stop thinking, we have to together stop thinking that we're praying to change God's mind or heart towards us because His heart is already filled with the maximum possible love towards us. It's not like we're going to make God love us more or force Him to do what we're demanding that He does. Listen, we pray because in our prayers we find that our heart changes. We find that the longer that we pray, even if we're praying over the same thing for years, it teaches us. It transforms me. If I'm praying for somebody that just drives me crazy, I have a hard time being mad at them. Our prayers change our hearts to make us more like God's heart. It's not that our prayers change God's heart. Because His heart's already as loving as it can possibly be towards us. First John tells us God is love. We don't want to change that. It's already He's picked the best for us. So those are three quick reasons why we pray. We pray because God told us to. It's a command. We pray so that we can participate in what God is doing in this world. And we pray so that our hearts might be changed to be more like God's. But now let's take a little look at how we pray. And the most incredible thing to me is that no matter what type of prayer, every prayer falls into two categories. It's either a spontaneous prayer or a systematic prayer. Now, I know in our culture and society today, the word systemic is very popular, but it is different from systematic. All right. Systematic means methodical. Systematic means methodical. Systemic means that it's Related to a system. We're talking about methodical prayers. But methodical doesn't start with an S. And I'm a Southern Baptist preacher. So I needed an S for the alliteration. So we're talking about spontaneous and systematic. Okay. So when I say systematic, just think methodical. You with me? This is yes. This is no. This is I'm asleep. Okay. All right. We're good. We're together. We pray and all of our prayers fall in one of those two categories. They're either systematic or they are spontaneous. Let's talk just for a minute about systematic prayers. We need systematic prayers. These are the prayers that are the complete opposite of what we see in Exodus 14.10. Systematic prayers are are ritualistic, okay? We have prayer time in our household every single night. There was one night that my stomach was a little messed up and I missed prayer time, okay? And I regret that night to this day. I am reminded of that night often. Daddy, you missed prayer time. What was wrong? Why did you miss prayer time, Daddy? It is a ritual. It is tradition. It is a systematic, methodical, planned prayer. These are the prayers where we write in our journals. These are the prayers where we keep a record of what's going on and how God has answered because it helps us to remember what God has done. We systematically pray. We have methodical prayer. The example we see of this, the primary example, is Daniel. In the Old Testament, Daniel prays three times a day. And even when there's an order that says you cannot pray to anybody but King Darius, Daniel goes out on the balcony, hits his knees and prays three times a day. It is systematic. 
He makes time, he schedules time, and he prays. You know, a great way to do a systematic prayer is to sign up for the prayer wall and take an hour every week to pray. I'm sorry, that's a shameless plug, but there it is. Systematic prayers all the time scheduled to happen regularly, okay? That's how Daniel prayed. It's also how Jesus prayed. Jesus went away all the time to pray. Remember, like every time the huge crowd was around him, he'd say something crazy that would make some people walk away, and then he'd go off and pray. Or he'd perform a miracle, and then he'd go off and pray. Over and over and over again in all four Gospels, we see Jesus getting by himself methodically, systematically to pray. We need these prayers. These prayers get us through life. But there's also spontaneous prayers. Spontaneous prayers are the prayers like, you know, when you're um, at a small group meeting or Sunday school class or, you know, you're in church right now and the Lord moves on the pastor's heart and he says, Claude, you got to pray, go like that. See, it wouldn't face Claude, but I knew some of y'all I could point at y'all and your whole body would have gone like your tongue would have dried up and everything about you, you would have gone. Jesus, amen. Yes, I prayed. Thanks, Pastor, for calling on me. I'm never coming back to this church again. And if I see that guy in public, I may hit him with my car. Like, I know that that happens in people, okay? But these are the spontaneous prayers. Spontaneous prayers are also the prayers we pray when we're at the highest highs of life and the lowest lows of life. The Israelites' prayer was spontaneous because in their eyes, they were at the lowest low of life. They had nowhere else to turn, so they cried out to God spontaneously, even together. You see, prayers don't have to just be individual. They can be individual or corporate. And corporate and individual prayers can be systematic and spontaneous. This happened to be a group of people praying all at the same time spontaneously. And this is a powerful prayer Folks, remember the time in your life. Maybe you haven't been there yet, but that time when there was nowhere else to turn and you cried out to God like you have never cried out to Him before. It wasn't a, Our Father, thank Thee that Thou art holy. I am praying this morning to begin my day. It is God save. God move. God please. Sometimes you can't even call His name. You just say please. Or maybe it's the highest moment in your life. If you've had children or grandchildren, maybe it was that moment that, that your son or your daughter or, or somebody put that child in your hand. That tiny miracle that you're holding in your own hands. And it just erupts out of you. God, you are amazing. These are our spontaneous prayers. And we need these spontaneous prayers. And folks... What happens is we shy away from both systematic prayers and spontaneous prayers because we sometimes fall into one of two camps. We fall into this camp over here that's more of a Calvinistic camp, okay? You you don't have to be reformed to fall in this camp, but there are people who are over here in this camp that says, ah, I don't really even need to pray. Ain't no point in praying. God's in control. He's sovereign. He's going to do everything He wants to do, so ain't no point in me praying. What's my praying going to do? They don't care that... Commanded in the Bible. This is the extreme now. But this is one side. 
We shy away from praying because it's not going to do any good. God's already in control. He's going to do whatever he wants to do. And then you got this other side over here. Now, this is the extreme version. This is the name it and claim it. I'm going to claim that our church will be full in the next five seconds. In Jesus' name, make it happen. And I mean, they just, they're going to pray and they're going to make God do whatever they want God to do. And he's going to show up and he's going to answer. I mean, it gets all the way over even into your faith healers and your Benny Hens and some of those people that might not even be Christians. But that's one camp and that's the other, and they're always pitted against one another. If you hit a crisis, you're going to hear from both sides of these camps, right? You're going to have some friends that come to you and say, just pray that the Lord's will be done in your life. And they're well-meaning, they're good Christians, but they fall more in this camp. Then you're going to have other people that come up and say, you claim that that cancer is gone and it will be gone. Well, what, what do you do? Which, which side do you go with? How are we supposed to pray with these two things against one another? Really, they join together in harmony so beautifully, but we miss it. I mean, Daniel prayed systematic prayers that he would be able to return to Jerusalem all of his life, but he never got to go back. And he still glorified God and served him. Paul prayed over and over again for the thorn to be removed from his flesh, and the thorn was never Removed. There are times where systematic and spontaneous prayers are not answered affirmatively. So what do we do? Which camp do we fall into? Well, this is how we pray. Look with me in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3. This is how we pray. Daniel chapter 3, let me just remind you of the story. You're probably familiar with it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those are their new names. All right, they... It wasn't their birth name, but they were given new names. They were taken captive. King Nebuchadnezzar has them in Babylon. He has built this enormous statue, and he says, everybody's got to bow to this statue. But Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, say, we will not bow down to the statue. And so Nebuchadnezzar gets really mad, and he goes to the furnace, and he heats the furnace up seven times hotter than it's ever been before, and he binds up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he gets them up to the furnace, and he gives them one last chance to bow down to his new statue and worship him. And this is their response. And this is how we should pray. They say in unison, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Folks, this is our prayer life. We go to the Lord because we know he is able. There wasn't a doubt in their mind. There wasn't an ounce of retreat. They believed God would deliver them. It wasn't a half-hearted prayer. It wasn't a half-hearted statement. They knew God was able and they knew God would deliver them. But they left the results up to God. They didn't pray and hold on and keep control and say, God, you've got to make it happen the way that I said it's going to happen. They prayed knowing that God was able. Knowing that one way or another, by, by their preferred method or by God's preferred method, God would deliver. But instead of holding on tight to the result, they let go. And they said, even if he doesn't, we will not worship you. We will not bow down to you. 
their faith was not shaken, even if God's answer was no. Folks, I I want us to realize that, that both of these things are true. God is in control. But we pray and our prayers affect the heart of the Creator. Look, look with me just through Scripture at all the things that have happened, especially in James. In the book of James, verse, verses 17 and 18 of chapter 5, we're told that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah, a regular guy. That's what James is saying. Elijah was a regular guy with a regular human nature, but he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, no rain on the earth. But he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. In the book of James, this is the same book where it says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Folks, we can pray like Elijah. James is telling us he was a regular guy. And he says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. That means that if you are righteous, if I am righteous, our prayers are powerful. But you might be thinking like I think, man, my righteousness is filthy rags. I don't understand, Pastor. I am not righteous, so I need to call somebody up who is righteous. For me, I'm going to call my grandmother because I know she's righteous. Or I'm going to call Miss Ernestine Cosby because I know that she is righteous and the Lord is listening to her prayers. I'm going to call up the people that I know to be righteous and close to the Lord because the Lord's going to hear their prayers. But let's think for just a moment. Nobody has righteousness. If we put our faith in the Lord Jesus, He covers us like a coat and puts His righteousness on us. And so it makes me righteous. Not because I'm a good person, not because I'm a pastor, not because I'm a preacher, but because I belong to Jesus and His blood covers me and His righteousness has now covered me to make me righteous. So what James is saying is that if I pray like Elijah, there can be results like Elijah, don't miss all the places where Scripture tells us that people prayed over and over, that things happened. Remember Joshua, in the heat of the battle, a spontaneous prayer gets lifted up and God actually stopped the sun so that they would have time to finish off the enemy in that one day in the Valley of Agilon. Over and over and over again, people pray and God moves. But we also have those examples. We have examples of Paul and Silas. Earthquake shatters the bars of the prison. But what about Daniel? He never made it back to Jerusalem. What about that same guy, Paul, who ended up being beheaded? What about that same guy, Paul, who still had the thorn in the side? Listen, folks, we pray in faith. We do just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We pray knowing our God is able Knowing that one way or another, our God will deliver in a way that will glorify Him and be for our good. But we leave our hands open and trust the results to the Lord. Knowing that how He delivers and how He answers will be what is best. And that may not be what we prayed for. It may be the opposite of what we prayed for. But that's how we pray. Why do we pray? We pray because we're commanded to. We pray so that we can participate in what God is doing in the world. And we pray to change our hearts. How do we pray? We pray spontaneously. We pray systematically. And we pray knowing God is able. We pray trusting God will deliver. 
But we entrust the results of that prayer to the Lord, knowing that He may move the mountain or He may leave the mountain where it is, but either way, He will deliver. We read just a couple weeks ago, Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. Know that God is able. Know that He desires to deliver you. But trust Him with the results. That your faith may not be shaken if the answer is no. And folks, I I want to throw one last thing out there. All right, we're going to be done. But if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm not 100% sure that the Lord hears and answers your prayers. Because in the eyes of the Lord, you haven't been covered by Christ's righteousness. James tells us that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. But those who are unrighteous are those who do not trust in Jesus. Those who have not been adopted into God's family. Those who've never said, Lord, I want you to be my Savior and my boss. I want you to save me from my sin and be in charge of my life. If that prayer has never gone up to the Lord, I don't know that any of your other prayers are being heard and answered the way that you might think they ought to be. Folks, the first prayer that you have to pray before you can expect to move mountains is to pray and say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have failed you more than I even understand. Would you save me? Help me to repent of my sin and help me to trust in you. And I want you to be my Lord, my boss. I want to go wherever you tell me to go and do whatever you tell me to do, Lord. If you've never prayed that prayer, I encourage you, make today the day that you pray it earnestly and mean it from the depths of your soul. Cry out the way that the Israelites cried out in Exodus 14.10 and say, Jesus, save me. Maybe this morning you've already prayed that prayer. Maybe your systematic prayers have been pretty dry lately. Maybe you hadn't even had spontaneous prayers lately. I just want you to know, in just a minute, when we have an invitation time, we call it a time of response so that we can respond to the Holy Spirit and His movement during this time. So if you need to pray right where you are and say, please, God, please, and that's all you can get out, that's perfectly fine. If you need to make where you're sitting your altar, then turn around and hit your knees and make it your altar. If you need to come down to these steps and symbolically humble yourself before the Lord on these steps, then you move forward during the singing. If you want to join the church, if you want to pray that prayer for the first time, however the Holy Spirit leads, I encourage you to respond. Let me pray for us. Jason will lead us, and let's respond to the Holy Spirit together. Father, thank you for the miracle of prayer. You command us to pray not for, not for your benefit, but for ours. Lord, I'm asking this morning that you'd move among us. Help us, Lord. Be merciful, Father. We love you and we need you.
this whole service is yours, Lord, but we dedicate especially this time. Spirit, that you might move among us and that we might respond in obedience. We ask all these things in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit.